Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. My teacher, Ilana Stein-Hain, taught me an amazing lesson years ago. Chapter 19 of the Book of Leviticus teaches the famous holiness code. It begins, You shall be holy, for I, Adonai, your God, am holy. And embedded in this famous chapter are the immortal words, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But later in the chapter, it says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love them as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so the question is, why do we need the commandment to love the stranger? Doesn't the commandment to love our neighbor encompass that? And the answer she gives is remarkable. The commandment to love your neighbor is relatively easy. You have to love the person who is kamocha, who is like you. But then you also have to love the stranger, the person who is lo kamocha, who is not like you. And learning how to love the people who are not like you is difficult and complicated. It used to be that societies were much more segregated and homogenous. But in the modern era, where we have learned to understand the truth that all people are created equal, we have learned to branch out from our own communities and from people who are only like us, so that we can meet those who are not like us and who are different from us. And not only have we come to appreciate and to learn from different cultures and different societies, we have learned to love them and even to form households with them. But when someone is raised in one culture and then ensconces themselves in another culture, as stimulating and exciting as that can be, it can also create misunderstandings and disillusionment and even resentments and hatred. And learning how we bridge the cultural divides is one of the most important and essential questions we face in our multicultural world today. And to help us explore this, we have with us today Jessica Keith. Jessica Keith is a professional lecturer and teacher at San Diego State University, where she works with cross-cultural communications as a writer and also as a mother. She has helped produce Beyond Our Boundaries, an engaging documentary that explores the interchange between international and American students, and her new memoir, Saying Inshallah with Chutzpah, A Gefilte Fish Out of Water, is coming out in November. It tells the story of how Jessica, as a young Jewish woman, came to work at the Consulate of Kuwait in Los Angeles, helping Kuwaiti international students in America, while also building a marriage in a Jewish home with her African-American husband and navigating clinical anxiety disorder. And I also know Jessica because she was my backyard neighbor for many years growing up in suburban Washington and has been a friend since we were children. And I'm so excited to have Jessica with us today. Thank you for having me. So as my former backyard neighbor... We had the chance to grow up in a very similar kind of a cultural identity. But as you think back to your own childhood and background, how did you develop a sense and sensibility that said, I shouldn't just stay with my own kind and that I should be open to branching out beyond the borders of my normal cultural context? I can't say that I consciously did that. But when I was 15, I moved to New Mexico and was, God, that feels like a really rabbinical question, the way you just framed that. I don't think it's something that we learn. 
I think it's just something that's like the way to be. So when you think about influences in your growing up, what were you say were those sort of major influences that kind of helped you think about who you wanted to be in the world? I don't know. I mean, I would say that my mom grew up in Memphis in the 60s, right? In 1950, 1960, when schools were still segregated. I, I mean, segregation was not illegal. There are signs that say no Jews, no dogs, no blacks allowed. And women only have this vision of being nurses or teachers or secretaries, being wives. And she was able to have this idea that the world has to be better. There has to be more out there than um, what she saw in Memphis. And similarly, my husband's family, who are Black, share a similar story. When they were in Tyler, Texas, and had this idea around the same time, it was so awful in Texas, and they said, it has to be better somewhere else. So for myself, I was raised in, in a house where the idea was like, should be better. And part of that is being better and doing better and thinking beyond your immediate surroundings. So when you come from that background that at once sort of is pushing back against some of those restrictive, oppressive, discriminatory environments that your family coming from the South was living and was taught to you, I think, as you were growing up in a Jewish home that you should push back against those things. Then you move into a life in California where you meet Tyrone and then get this job at the Kuwaiti consulate in Los Angeles. So your book explores that, but tell me what it was about that job that made you say, yeah, I'll apply to go work at the Kuwaiti consulate. Well, I had just spent a year with Tyrone living in Spain. We we did a gap year later in life, but before we got married and lived in Spain in a farm town in the Basque region, which was just a new adventure every day. What it, what inspired you to want to go to Spain? I don't know. I had this idea when I first met Tony. I was like, I want to go to live in Spain for a year. And I knew that my anxiety was going to be uh, prohibit me from being able to do it. So I was like, it's not going to be today. It's not going to be tomorrow. But eventually, I want to do this. And so five or six years later, I packed up some sedatives and some whatnot, and he came with me, and we spent a year in Spain. And I, I was actually working for on a grant sponsored by the Embassy of Spain. So when I came back to the U.S., it was, I think it was 2008, and we just had this like beautiful adventure for a year traveling and working and going to the market. And then the economy crashed and we could not get jobs. So 
I was wrapping Christmas presents for a Jewish Grinch in San Diego. And I was getting paid, I don't know, like $7 an hour to wrap Christmas presents. I was motivated to be in my field, which was international education. And any job that was remotely tied to that, uh, I applied to, knowing that my alternative was wrapping Christmas presents. So tell me a little bit about what drew you to international education when you were sort of picking out what you wanted to study and what you wanted to do. What was it about international education that drew you? I was working in San Diego in different mental health research capacities. And I noticed that there was a lot of international community that would come in and there were always these cultural barriers with like talking about mental health or uh, mental health being taboo. Also not really having like an authentic discussion for the international community within mental health. And I thought, I kind of like to study international education so that I could bring the two together, right? So that I could help the greater community as opposed to just like Americans that would come to the facility. Like I could help the international community that come. So then uh, you go to work at the Kuwaiti consulate which was, I'm sure, sort of this amazing, complicated experience. What was that like, just sort of going in there the first few days, sort of navigating all of these cross-cultural sort of collisions between yourself as an American, as a woman, as a Jew, working for a foreign country, with a different religious culture, with a different ethnic culture. What was it like trying to insert yourself into that different kind of environment? Probably the first thing that I realized was different was my gender. Because, for example, when I went in for the interview, I went to shake the hand of um, the cultural attache, and he did not shake my hand back. And I was like, oh, that's kind of rude. And then... During the interview, he always looked past me. He didn't look me directly in the eye. And I thought, oh, that's rude. And then as I was getting dressed, and I'm making the assumptions this is has something to do, I don't know, with being a woman. And, and then on the first day of work, as I was getting dressed, I thought, am I showing too much skin? I, I just, I hadn't really thought about it in advance, but when I looked in the mirror and saw my arms were showing, my legs were showing, I was wearing high heels, I thought, oh, I wonder if this is going to be a problem. So then I, I covered myself up a little bit more, but it was little things like just in greeting people and getting dressed for the day where I started to realize like, oh, these are maybe these are things I should be paying attention to that maybe isn't going to follow what I'm used to. And I think it's so interesting, you know, when we live in a particular cultural context, there's just so many assumptions that we make about what's normal 
and what's right and what's appropriate. And then I think part of the value of encountering another culture is it makes us much more awake and aware to these little things that we would never have thought about, like modesty issues or touch or what is an appropriate relationship in a work environment between a man and a woman. All of those kinds of things that in a different culture have completely different expectations and norms than an American culture. So when you sort of bump up against that, what did that sort of do inside? Did it make you feel defensive? Did it make you feel resentful? Did it make you curious, appreciative for this different culture? Sort of what did that do inside as you're trying to sort of figure out how you fit in that office? For me, one thing I think for better or for worse, I was I was so naive going into it. And I think they're like that that innocence combined with being mindful really helped me. So I wasn't naive and ignorant, but I was naive and mindful. So as as these hiccups would happen and they would always happen, I would wear the wrong thing or look the wrong way or say something wrong. I I like found a lot of humor in just laughing at myself. And and actually it went both ways because a lot of the comments that I would hear or a lot of the hiccups that would happen, I think both ways, I found them like somewhat funny because you're like, oh, I mean, people like those movies like Lost in Translation, where, you know, you go to shake someone's hand and they're bowing at you and no one knows what to do next. Right? Because there's like this awkwardness, but instead of, you know, I found humor in it. Well, I think it's great that you were able to find humor in it. And the way that you sort of describe some of these experiences in your book are actually very humorous, but they're also kind of touching and even a little bit painful. You know, so I remember the the story that you told that was the, the big birthday at the office and everyone's bringing baked goods. And so you said, I'm going to be you know, terrific. And you stop off at the store in the midst of not having any money and pressures getting to work and a long commute and everything involved in all that. And you pick up a beautiful tiramisu cake, not realizing that in a Muslim environment, they can't eat tiramisu because of the alcohol. How does a person sort of experience those things where somebody might look at that as embarrassing or shameful or being made to feel less than as a oh, I can laugh at that as I'm learning how to inhabit a different kind of cultural environment. First, let me ask, am I allowed to swear in front of the rabbi? <laughs> it, depends on, it depends on the swear word. We'll see if we okay. need to beep it. <laughs> okay. So I, in that scenario, yes, I brought in tiramisu. I knew everybody. I, I was I was so excited because um, it was a birthday and I, I didn't think anyone else remembered. I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was a good choice. I bring it in and I was like, am I, why is nobody, um, why are they like, I'm getting yelled at. Somebody hits the cake onto the floor and I'm like, oh my gosh, they can't drink coffee. They can't drink coffee. Is that it? No, I was like, no, they do drink coffee. And I was like, what is wrong with the cake? And 
And then I thought, oh, it must be the lady fingers because they can't touch the woman. Like maybe that's with lady fingers. And then one of the women says, there's alcohol in it, you idiot. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm such an asshole. Like who brings a cake with alcohol in it to a Muslim office. In the moment, I did not, I did not find it funny. In, in hindsight, I think about my, my naivety and how I was just trying so hard to do the right thing. And I failed. I kept, and I kept failing. And you'd think I'd learn after a while. And it, it took me, my learning curve was not fast because the culture was so foreign to me. So I was not laughing initially. I, I laugh, you know, maybe a decade later at it, but it just now is a reminder of what people really don't know about each other, right? Yeah, and I think that that sense of, if you wanna wade into a cross-cultural encounter, a, you've got to come in with some humility to know that you're going to step in it no matter what, right? Because we yeah. only can see what we can see. And, you know, the best fortune cookie I ever got said, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment, right? So, right. you know, you learn as you go along and you have to be willing to laugh at yourself a little bit at the same time, bringing some humility to that project because there's going to be learning and the learning may not always be comfortable. And so what I also wanted to sort of ask you a little bit about was for someone who talks so bravely about your own experience with anxiety and how that was in so many different ways that you relate something that could be really crushing. How did you move beyond that to be able to continue to put yourself in stressful environments, right? So, you know, you might imagine that someone who has anxiety would say, all right, I'm certainly not going to do a cross-cultural engagement because that's going to put me in all kinds of places that will make me anxious. So in what way did you find your anxiety to be a hindrance in your experience there? And in what ways was it helpful? if at all. So a key point here is that I sometimes explain to people is there's a difference between stress and anxiety, right? So we all have, we all throughout the day, maybe through a week, a busy time, we all experience stress. Anxiety is different in that your body, like my body misinterprets cues and thinks it's going to die. So working was sometimes stressful being in the cross-cultural, um, you know, with these mishaps was, was, it, it could have been stressful, but it didn't ever elicit anxiety for me. And that's something that I think, um, you know, I can speak to a room of 10,000 people and not be nervous. But if you ask me to ride in an elevator to the top story of my office, I will feel like I'm going to die every time. So my office was on the 18th story of 
the Twin Towers of Los Angeles, which are the Century City Towers, which are which were built by the same people as the same architect that designed the Twin Towers in New York. But every day I commuted and then stepped into this elevator. I was like, had that feeling that I was going to die. And then I'd start my work day. When you experience anxiety and panic, it makes sense. But in the logical sense, it doesn't like, I know I'm as like right now, I know I'm not going to die in the elevator. And when I go to work, I don't have anxiety. But when you're in that moment, there is no logic. So it's always like, for me, I always try to help people understand I am a logical person. I am an educated person. I am a sensible person. I'm an intellectual person. I get stressed, but that doesn't keep me from doing things. It's anxiety where I feel like you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it that keeps me from doing basic things. I really appreciate that explanation, that clarification, because I think that people who don't live with those kinds of syndromes like anxiety can't really appreciate what it means to do something that uh, is just basic and normal for another person, like getting on an elevator uh, or sitting in an enclosed space or any of the other things that trigger for you. And what I thought was so interesting was there are ways in which in a cross-cultural situation, sometimes there are ways to bridge those boundaries because of other kinds of shared experience. So in the book, you kind of describe an encounter with your boss, Muhammad, where you kind of are both dealing with a shared experience of anxiety. And I believe there was another student that also was dealing with anxiety also, and you were able to bring some sense of comfort to that student. So, you know, what does it take to make a human connection that transcends cultural difference? Well, I think my, I think my boss was stressed out all the time. And so I knew what I needed to do just to make him happy as you know, as you make a boss, right? You do the work, you do good work, you do quality work. And the culture doesn't, doesn't impact that, right? So I was like, okay, do good work and make him happy with good work. And that, that culture was, you know, aside from that, I knew that would make him happy. The anxiety with the student was such an impactful moment, because growing up, anytime I would go on a date, anytime, I'd always throw up. I'd be so nervous. I have like literally a hundred stories of embarrassing throwing up in a purse or, you know, on someone or on myself. Like I have a hundred stories like that until I met Tyrone. And Tyrone is the first person that I did not throw up on on a date. And that's my mom always says, well, that's why you, might, why you married him. And I'm like, well, that's not exactly why I married him, but it is, it is comforting. When the student came in, they were coming in for, uh, for me to sign off on a work document or uh, I think it was some type of university document they needed me to sign off on. And I know 
that as an American, going to a university is a big deal, right? There's a lot of change. As an American, you go to college, you go away to college, you're away from home, you're away from your family. But then I'm thinking as I work there longer, oh my gosh, these students that are coming, they are often coming on a one entry visa, which means for four years, and not all the students, but sometimes when international students come to the US, and this is more common, for example, to come from Iran on a one entry visa, which means for the four years of studying, if you go back home, you're not, you're not necessarily going to get to come back to the U.S. to study. So you have to stay in the U.S. for the full course of your studies and then return. I understood that the students were so far from home. A number of them, this was their first time in the U.S. They, you know, English is their second language. And they're, a lot of them are religious. And you take that and you enter a U.S. college dorm where there's partying, there's alcohol, right? People are running around in, in bathing suits and bikinis and, and whatnot. That in of itself is so overwhelming, I imagined. So I always tried to check in with the students to see how are things going. Now, so in the U.S., when you say, how are you doing? People answer, good, how are you? But they're actually just saying hello, right? When anybody asks you, how are you doing? You're not actually wanting to know how they're doing, right? When people say that, I teach my students, like when Americans say that, they don't actually want to know how you're doing. They're saying hello. It's well, some of, us, some of us might want to know a little. <laughs> yes. But then what we do is we, what I do is we pause and we, we ask it again. So I ask it and they, we go through the formality. And then with these students, I would say, okay, tell me how you're, you are actually doing, right? To give them the space where they can actually answer the question. Right. So in that experience, when the student was like, I'm just getting this paper signed off. And I said, how are you doing? They said, good. I said, okay. And then I said, how are you really doing? What's going on? What is, you know? What does it look like for you? And giving them that space to just exhale and say, it's not going well, right? And, and then sitting in that, sitting in it together, right? And the student in this scenario was, was saying, because he was given the space to do so, he could see that I was sincere that I was, you know, interested and that I was creating a space, you know, to, to be honest, he said, you know, I've lost a lot of weight. His friends had been pressuring him to go on dates. And he's like, I have no interest in doing this. And I throw up all the time. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I am this, like, I'd never met anyone else who'd had that same scenario. And I was like, I completely understand what you're saying. 10 out of 10 times when I explain my anxiety to people, they don't get it. So to find someone that says, I, I, I get that. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. 
And yes, that's how it works. It doesn't matter where we're from. It is a moment of sincere bonding and human connection. It's such an amazing story about the latent humanity that we all kind of share despite all our cultural differences. And it's interesting because I think most of us try to spend time connecting with people with whom we share a common culture. So I live in Boca Raton. A lot of people move to Boca Raton because it's this incredibly rich, dynamic Jewish community. So Jews tend to go find other Jews. I can't tell you how many times it happens that people are traveling and they're like, I was in Timbuktu, Rabbi, and I found the synagogue. And they bring me a pamphlet, you know, they, people want to find their own. And, you know, you talk about how you kind of wanted to do that too, uh, when you were living in Los Angeles, apart from your family, and it was Passover. And so a stranger's uh, family brought you in to make you feel part of their family for Seder, for Passover. Then you talk in different ways about how at that Seder and in your office and in other places, you could feel that sting of intolerance and resentment. And you, in your life, inhabit so many different cultural worlds, a Jewish world, an African-American world, working for a, a foreign government, employed by a religious Muslim man in that time. So can you talk a little bit about sort of your experiences of intolerance? You know, what's it like having a foot in so many worlds that seem to be intolerant of each other? Is it enough, like, as you write to say, while pretending to eat the gefilte fish, I found it just easier to bite my tongue? Or is there other things that we should do when we encounter intolerance? It's interesting because as I've gone through this journey and I, and I, you know, I read a lot about the Jewish community and the things Kanye West will say, or just statements that, that people will make, that I'll be in the news and Jews are like, oh, they're anti-Semitic. People hate the Jews and it's really focused on, on us, right? We're like people, we, they don't like us. There's a history behind that. But what I don't, what I think about doesn't focus on that. What I think about is how we are white passing. So white passing is this, is this, is this concept that you can be in a room and I mean, maybe if you're wearing a tallit and you're in Boca Raton, people are going to know you're Jewish, right? But if you're just a neighborhood kid or you're just, you know, out and about traveling, Jews, for the majority, are white passing, which means you can't necessarily know that someone is Jewish just looking at them. So you might find yourself in a room, people don't know you're Jewish, and so they say, awful things or they say awful things about other cultures because they might make an assumption that you will be in agreement. What I do is I think about, oh my gosh, we are worried what people think about us as Jews when in 99.9% .9 of the spaces we are in, everyone around us amongst everyone around us, we're still the majority. So I think about what does that look like for someone who's 
biracial, for example. So I worked with this gentleman at Caltech whose father was black and his mother was white and he was working at Caltech in Los Angeles. He was white passing. He looked more white and he found himself in spaces where people would say negative things about blacks and the black community. The weight that he had to carry in those spaces was too much for one person to have to bear. For me, when I'm in a situation where people are like, oh my gosh, they they don't like Jews, da da da, I always think, oh my gosh, okay. But like there there's we're still part of a majority in the US. We reap benefits of that and we have to acknowledge those benefits that we are reaping and recognize what inequities there are for the other communities. And I think it's interesting that you talk about sort of what it's like when people are overlooked, elements of their identity are not apparent or they are there that are apparent and they get overlooked as well. There were so many occasions in your book where you talked about people feeling invisible. You talked about your own experience where you had to hide your Jewish identity. You talked about your colleague, Abdul Batin, I hope I'm saying his name right, where he's the one man in an office filled with women and how he gets overlooked uh, about the horrible experience when your husband was injured from a hit and run and was basically invisible in the hospital. And I would imagine that there's kind of a paradox where sometimes people stick out, you know, an international student at an American university sticks out, an interracial couple, a brown student in a Jewish religious school sticks out. And at the same time, there's also this sense that sometimes people are made to feel invisible. So what do you counsel students when they're made to feel like Mr. Cellophane, that like that no one sees them, or when they feel like they stick out like a sore thumb because they are, as you talked about at times that your husband feels, and I would imagine sometimes maybe your kids feel like we're the only black person in blank environment. So how do people balance that that sense of feeling invisible or overlooked like they're that they, that they don't matter even when it would seem on the outside that they stick out uh I'm the only man in the room I'm the only black person in the room I'm the only uh Jewish person in the room I can't speak to that because it's not my experience right my experience even as a Jewish woman and a Muslim, working for a Muslim government, as a woman in the room, I'm still what this, this concept of white passing. So when I go to a family celebration for my husband's, on my husband's side, and there are a hundred people there and everyone is black and I am the only white person when that when that happened for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what it feels like for people every single day, every day. And people don't, majority white people in the U.S. 
are unfamiliar with that feeling or sentiment or concept or idea, you don't necessarily think it's a big deal. Like what's, what's, you know, we're all created as one. But then when you're in that space, you're like, oh, this is a thing. You're like, I, I am the only white person in this room of a hundred black people, which is not, um, so common of an experience, right? But to be the only black man or black woman in a room of all of all white people, it's every it's it's every day. It's every day. And that people carry is not one that I feel that I can speak to, but I can acknowledge that that that's a weight. That can be a weight and a responsibility. Right. I know for my husband, he knows that he has to carry himself a certain way. I mean, I read that about Obama. He was like, I had to do the right thing. And Michelle, every time, because we were not just acting as individuals. They were representing the African-American community and could not afford to make a single mistake. And that weight is not something that I feel like. Jews have to carry. Well, I think actually Jews carry that in ways that we wouldn't imagine. So I think in the Orthodox Jewish community, where they are more visible because of their style of dress or because of the way that they wear their beards or or cover their hair, I think the Orthodox Jewish community actually has had to deal with those same kinds of experiences in other places. And when you hear about the rise of anti-Semitic acts, specifically perpetrated against the Orthodox community in New York, you kind of get a sense of those of us in the non-Orthodox community about how we pass as Jews too. Uh, You know, I see so many times, you know, people come into the synagogue, that's when they put on a kippah. And I even have my own little kind of quirk where I wear a kippah almost all day, but for some reason, I don't like to wear my kippah when I'm pumping gas. For some reason, when I get to the gas station, I feel like I want to take that off. I'm not sure why that is. And I think it's actually partly because maybe at the gas station, I don't want somebody to look at me, oh, there's the Jewish guy. I think that there are things that make it easier for us as Jews to pass when we want to, because we can choose to shed that traditional garb and fit in more in a uh, generalized American context. But when it's your skin color, you can't do that. Or when it's your religious conscience, and even if you might want to, you don't, uh, you sort of have to know what it is to inhabit that space. I'm curious to know, for your kids who are growing up in a Jewish community, but who are coming from a biracial family, do they talk about that sense of feeling othered within a Jewish context? No, not yet. They they acknowledge they know separate from Judaism, right? When we during the pandemic around the protests um, and Black Lives Matter, there was a lot of questions around like why is this the case for us? Why? But they haven't tied it specifically to Judaism. I'm conscious of it. And for example, when there's so many times when people want 
to take photos of my family for, for Jewish news or for the newsletter or to advertise religious school to show that it's diverse and welcoming. And my temple is so welcoming. I just absolutely love it. But I will not let my family be a photo of that. A sense of being tokenized. Yes. Yes. And I am a hyper aware and sensitive to that so that they can be black and Jewish. They are not going to be the image, the picture for diversity and inclusion. Like we will practice that in our home and outside our home, but a photo of us to promote that isn't, isn't going to work for in my house. I appreciate that. So last question I would ask you, Jessica, is what's the essential question you're asking yourself these days? What's the sort of nagging question that keeps you uh, sort of thinking in off moments? I would say there are a couple. One being, who am I answering to? In regards to Judaism, who am I answering to? So with the holidays, the first question I get asked is, are you going to services? And when people ask that, it feels like a ranking system. Does going to services make us more religious? It tends to be a question that does not feel to me inclusive. When I think about, okay, if I missed a service, and it's the holiest time of year, it's the most religious time of year, it is our Super Bowl, does that make me less Jewish? No. Right now, around the Jewish holidays, I'm thinking about why do people, why do we ask that, and why do I feel guilty in response? Right? I know, I mean, I am strong in my Jewish convictions, in my Jewish family, and yet... I feel ranked and sometimes guilt if I miss a service, which I think I'm trying to let go of, right? For me, I'm like, I practice Judaism in a reform manner, which is in the way that is most meaningful to me and my family. Another essential question that I'm thinking about around the book is... The irony of, I wrote this book and people asked me, are you going to travel, right? Are you going to travel around to promote the book? And I, like I said before, I can speak to a room of 10,000 people. I can get on a podcast. I can, you know, write in a way that describes sitting in the most embarrassing, uncomfortable situation, but I cannot drive beyond a 20 mile radius. So my essential question is, if not now, when I think about, I think about that and you can do all these things and you can't do others. And at what point will you find the time or the, whatever it takes to be able to do the things that, that I can't well, Jessica, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. 
Your new book, What Does It Mean to Say Inshallah with Chutzpah, is available for pre-ordering and is coming out in mid-November. We wish you lots of good luck with the book, and we thank you for being with us today on Essential Questions. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word And we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions Podcast.